it is a non-expert who disrupts the industry. Because once you are expert at something, you can be 10% better than anybody else, but you'll never be 10 times better than anyone else unless you are a non-expert. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huber. You're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Naveen Jain. How are you? I'm doing absolutely amazing. Awesome. Well, it's great to have you. So to take it way back, I assume you're born, you come out, you start analyzing the diets in the hospital room, making sure everybody's taking care of their gut health. Like just out the gate, you had a fascination with gut health, right? Well, you know, interestingly, <laughs> most corporate stories are rewritten after the company's success. Right? Yeah, Everybody right. goes back and say, when I was young and I was looking at the moon and I was trying to give this <laughs> gift to my pets, to my girlfriend, I decided I'm yeah. going to start this. Like, rarely, very rarely, these stories are ever have, you know, they may have iota for truth in them, but there's a <laughs> truth to them. The fact is, you know, your life is just a string of events that happen. Right. And a lot of the times people have this idea there is one event that changes the perspective on what you're doing. And very similar to what people think, it's the last straw that broke the camel's back. And you and I both know it's never the last straw. It's all other straws that were before that that actually broke the camel's back. Right. And, and, And I think to me that there may be a catalyst, there may be a triggering event that happens. And that's really all it is. But the knowledge and the ideas are actually being accumulating over a long period of time. So every interaction you have with someone, everything you, people you meet, it changes your perspective on what is possible and what you can do. And one day there's a triggering event and you say, you know what, F it, I'm going to go do it. <laughs> and, and you've got the context at that point. But yeah, it's exactly. possible. So yeah. that being said, let's start from the beginning. Where are you from? Well, you know, Oh God, you have to ask, right? So I'll, yeah. if most people have not guessed that, obviously I'm from India. So yeah. there you have it. Well, where in India? Yeah, let's get some details here. Well, you know, it's honestly, I, you know, I left left India and I came to the United States with very little money. I had $5 in my pocket, a typical immigrant sob story, you know, that just generally every immigrant who came here, it's like, we came with nothing. And how old were you? Work, I was 22. Oh, so right? you, did, and, you spent all of your childhood in India. A childhood, yes. And then, you know, I've been here for about 38 years yeah. now. And uh, how so in a long... What did your parents do? Like, what was your upbringing like? So, uh, you know, middle class upbringing, mostly I would say lower middle class upbringing where, you know, and uh, I remember the childhood where we didn't have much resources, didn't have food to eat, didn't have a place to stay. But, you know, all those things at the end of the day make you who you are today, which yeah. is you're no longer a afraid of the dark you're no longer afraid of losing things because you have been there and done that <laughs> yeah no that's uh, that's fair and so what did your parents do by the way like what, what was so my parents was a overseer for construction for building the buildings for the government and the road and that was a you know it, 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 yeah and you went through government. school and did you have siblings growing up i i, I did i have my uh, older sister and a younger brother and um, fortunately they all are extremely highly educated so even though we lived in very poor neighborhoods and we didn't have the schools in the neighborhoods uh, my sister has a 
postdoctorate in applied mathematics and my brother had a phd in statistics and you know so you know very highly accomplished and i'm the least educated person in my family i i can relate where did that come from it, 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 did your parents just value education or how, how did you all this well eric i mean this is true of almost any family who grow up you know who actually come from poverty the parents always want the children to come out of that poverty and I think despite what, you know, we may believe, I think education is really the number one way of uh, coming out of poverty. No, and I'm great. surprised when people who are in poor, growing up in a poor family where they don't value education, because that's a certain path of actually doing well. Yeah. So I think to a large extent, our family mostly focused on education and it wasn't just about getting a degree. It was all about learning, yeah. creating the intellectual curiosity. And, you know, I think education is really interesting. It is, we believe it is a job of the teacher or a parent to teach you something. And as they say, it's like their job is to take you to the water and make you drink. So they show you, this is what you need to learn and you, yeah. they make you learn. And I really believe if you really want someone to learn something, all you have to do is not take them to take them to water and make them drink, make them thirsty. Because yeah. once you make someone thirsty, not only they will spend rest of their life finding the water, they will drink it. Right. So what causes people to be thirsty is intellectual curiosity. And if you can create intellectual curiosity in someone, you will find that person never stops learning. Right. Because every time they find something, they say, why does it work this way? Why can't we do X? And they constantly learn. And the life become, it, learning becomes a lifelong goal and achievement. And that, to me, is something that we were very fortunate to be able to actually pass that thing to our children. And, you know, we have three amazingly great kids. Our oldest went to Wharton. And then he started, you know, and he is now building his third unicorn, right? And a great entrepreneur. And if you Google him, he's literally in the, you know, in, featured in New York and Wall Street Journal and Inc. Magazine. And you pick a name you want, he's featured everywhere. Yeah. Our daughter went to Stanford, uh, Stanford Stamp Fellow, Stanford Mayfield Fellow, first company using AI to remove gender bias. And now she's on to her second company, women's health company. Our youngest one went to Stanford, became a Schwarzman scholar. And now he's doing a FinTech, right? What is it about the, you know, it was interesting to see that a lot of people say, well, you grow up poor and you have this hunger to go out and do something. Yeah. These kids, and I could lie to you, but these kids grew up in a very affluent family. Yeah, they knew on day one, they didn't have to work for a living for a, their generation or the next generation, right? So how do you create this thirst on a child who knows that they don't have to work for a living, right? And yep. that was the most interesting part of parenting that I learned that it was never going to be like, I remember when the kids were young and my wife would say, you know, we could live in a small home and we'll tell them we have no money. And I said, <laughs> you know, Fortunately, they one day they will they will learn to read, and when they learn to read, they will realize that dad is not poor. <laughs> yeah, 
and, and if you're expecting the kids to be illiterate, then we don't need to worry about anything. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. You're not setting them up anyway. So. <laughs> so point really was, how do you change that perspective? And there was very interesting things since you brought it up. We actually did three things that I thought were just very counterintuitive. First thing we did was we told them that our love for you is unconditional, but our approval is not. And that just the difference was, I will always love you, but I will never say I'm proud of you unless you do things that make us proud of you. Mm -hmm. And so guess what happened? Our job was to let them know what makes us proud of them. And they spent rest of their life trying to make us you know, proud. And that was very interesting because the kids at the end of the day, I don't care what kids tell you implicitly or explicitly. They want their parents' approval. They want kids, their parents to be proud of them, right? Yeah. But our job was to let them know what makes us proud of them. So we basically said simple thing. Your success will never be measured by how much money you have in the bank. It will always be measured by how many lives you have improved. And if you can do improve more lives, and we will be very proud of you, right? Number two things. We say your success will show when you become humble. Because if you still have arrogance left in you, that means you're still trying to prove something to yourself or someone else. And that's the reason you have arrogance. The minute you actually become successful, you never have to show someone who you are. You just do things, right? Yeah. And the third thing we said was, look, your self-worth never comes from what you own. It comes from what you create. So if you own a lot and you haven't created anything, you're still a parasite on society. So do me a favor and just don't be a parasite. Yeah, touche. No, that's, that's per so I'm curious. So, you know, you grow up in this environment where, you know, they reinforced education and everything. Were you entrepreneurial at that point? Like, did you? Oh, yes. Yeah. I've been an entrepreneur. Uh, I mean, I started my first company in 1996 in the, the early dot-com era. Right. So that was after and, I meant more childhood. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. But my up. point was the kids were my oldest was six years old uh -huh. when I started the company and our daughter was two years old and the youngest wasn't born. <laughs> yeah. So they grew up in this entrepreneurial family. Yeah. We are no, the first I mean, company. I'm just talking about more you, though, in India. Like, were you doing so, entrepreneurial things as a kid? Well, very interesting. In India, surviving is entrepreneurship. <laughs> when you have a 1.4 billion people yeah. for anything you want to do. So if you want to go to a good college, you are, when, you know, my kids, you'll say, oh, dad, you don't understand the Stanford only has 6% or 5% acceptance rate. It is very difficult to get in. And I was like, 5%? I wish I had a 5% yeah. <laughs> when I went to IIT. <laughs> I mean, it's literally at that point you have you know, half a billion people applying for a 2000 thing. I mean, where's the 5% comes into that? It's like, really 5% I'll take that any day. Yeah, no, that's, and yeah, that's fair. And I think what I'm saying was that you become on the everything there is literally takes a survival skill of an entrepreneur just to live through that. Yeah, no, that there's a lot of truth to that. And so what drove you to come to the US? Was it just opportunity? You wanted to come out? Neither, actually neither one. I think okay. I hate to even say it is partly about just believing that I'm so damn good. So I had had no dream of coming to uh, United States. I didn't plan for doing it. And generally, you know, I, I was in, doing my finishing my MBA and there was a company called Burroughs and you're too young to remember that it's called Unisys. They were a big mainframe company like IBM. Mm -hmm. They came for a campus interview looking for uh, computer science people. 
I have never seen a computer in my life. So I'm like, you know, just why would you even apply? Yeah. I was having lunch with my bunch of my buddies and say, God, you know, these guys, they do an aptitude test. And he said, this is the toughest test they have ever taken. And I said, come on, dude. I mean, what tough? I've been to IIT. This is not a tough test. And the guy looks at me and said, have you done the test before you tell me it's not tough? Yeah. I said, that's a challenge. Fuck it. So I'm going to go do that damn thing. So I go there, actually do the test. And obviously must have aced it because next day I get a call and see, we want to interview. I say, interview me for what? He said, being a computer programmer. And I said, what's a computer? And the guys, I have no idea that am I just playing with them? He said, we're looking at your thing. And you're telling me you don't know what computer? I said, never know. I have no idea what computer is. Never seen one, never done anything. And the guy says, do you know the difference between a bit and a byte? And I said, moron knows that. Byte is big and bit is small. He said, there you have it. You are a computer programmer. <laughs> <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> and they, they basically say, great. We're going to hire you. We're going to bring you to New Jersey. You can do the computer programming. <laughs> and there you have it. <laughs> so that's how you ended up in the US. Got it. And so how long, how long did you do that for? Like, how long before you met your wife, had kids, all that? So I worked there for about a year or so. And okay. then I decided I was in New Jersey and, you know, landed up in New Jersey and I was getting paid $500 a month. So mm -hmm. literally, if you think about it, it's like $3 an hour or something like that. And uh, I had, you know, no money. So six of us were living in this, a one a farmhouse, six of us living, didn't have money for a car. So we bought a used uh, Chevrolet Impala for $500 and six of us owned that car together. <laughs> And, I, and we came there in June and it was nice and sunny. And I saw the remember the farm, how there is stream of water going around thinking, what a great land we came to. This is an amazing place. Come around November, December, I saw the white stuff falling from the sky. And it's like, what a great country though. God even bless it. I have no idea what's called snow. I'm thinking <laughs> white stuff is falling here. Next day, the whole place is full of ice and I have no clothes and no shoes. I'm wearing a leather shoes, got holes in my leather shoes. I'm decided this is not a country for me. I got to get out of here. Yeah. So I caught, told my boss and I said, look, I think I'm going to go back to my country. This is just not my place for here. I'm going to go back. And he looks yeah. at me and says, you know, you're a very smart kid. I don't think we are actually taking advantage of your skills. You really need to go to Silicon Valley. That's where all the smart people are. Go to Silicon, you know, go to San Francisco Bay Area. And I'm going to make some calls, get you some interviews. That is where you belong. And, you know, got hired by Convergent Technologies, the top, the fastest growing company in the Valley at that time. Yeah. And ended up working there. And I realized that I will never be a damn good programmer. That is just, there are too many people who have computer science degree. What do I know about this stuff? I yeah. should go join a startup company and I'm going to actually do marketing. Mm -hmm. Learn my lessons that nobody wants to speak to a guy who can barely speak proper English. And I realize I'm marketing, which got it for me. So I'm thinking, look, I can't do that technical stuff. I can't be in marketing. Maybe I should do something that will help the salespeople explain the technology to them. <laughs> Yeah. And so I became a technical marketing person who a sales guy would sell the stuff. And this Indian guy comes and say, all right, I'll talk to you about science stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Perfect. And, great. And then worked for a bunch of startup companies and finally met my wife. She was finishing her MBA at, through some common friends and she decided to move to California now. And she moves there. And the first thing she says, you know, she was came from East Coast and said, look, I hear the Pacific Northwest is so beautiful. We should go and visit sometime there. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, God, that's going to cost a lot of money. He's going to vacation. I don't have that much money in the bank, but I can't disappoint her that no, we can't go. So I said, no, sweetheart, we'll go. Absolutely, we'll go make it happen. I faxed my resume to this tiny company called Microsoft. Mm-hmm. They are at this point really, really, I mean, now you're talking about 80s. In 80s, they are just a tiny company. And I faxed my resume and I get a call from a recruiter and said, we'd like to talk to you. And I said, of course you do. I said, but I hear it rains a lot in Seattle. And I think if I could come there for a week or so, and if you really enjoy the place, we'll be happy to interview. And yeah. this is not a problem. We'll put you up in the hotel and come over. So now I tell my wife, we're going to Pacific Northwest. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to have a week of vacation there. And it's paid for. <laughs> do my thing. And we go there and we spend a time. Come Friday, I'm an honorable guy. I'm going to go out and interview. Yeah. So did my part, did 9 to 10, 10 to 11, 11 to 12, and normally you have a lunch. And at that time, they have gotten the go, no go. And normally they would tell you that, hey, nice meeting. We will get back to you or the interview continues. I have no idea how it's going on. I'm now 2 to 3, 3 to 4, 4 to 5. I'm at 5 o'clock. I'm thinking this is way too much, way beyond what I bargained for. So my 5 o'clock interview is running late. And... Uh, I tell, my, tell the receptionist, I say, would you let the gentleman know that I was here and I waited and I'm leaving and I think I've done my part. She said, give me a minute. And she calls and say, oh, he just finished the meeting with Bill Gates. He'll be here in 30 seconds. Uh, can you wait? I'm saying, meeting with Bill Gates, he must be important. So I go wash my face. <laughs> so I'm sitting there and the first thing he says to me was, look, the fact you're talking to me, that means we have made a decision to hire you. Sit back, relax, and let me convince you uh, why you should join Microsoft. And I said, well, in that case, since you're being so honest, let me tell you exactly why I'm here for. My wife wanted to have a free vacation. <laughs> this is, I decided was the easiest way for me to do that. And so here I am. He looks at me and says, oh, so is this how we're going to negotiate? And I said, no, 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 no I'm not negotiating. He said, forget my time to convince you. I'm going to just make you an offer. And I said, you know what? I love California. I love being there. There is no offer you can make me that I'm actually going to move here. But I'm not done. Make me an offer that I can't refuse. I'll be here. But chances you finding that is pretty narrow. And so he makes me an offer. And I said, you know, as I said, I don't think this is compelling enough for me to move here. And uh, he looks at me, little frustration in his thing that I'm just not responding to him. And he says, you know, let me think about it for a second. He said, okay, I'm going to make you another offer. And he makes me an offer. And I said, this is a damn good fair offer. And honestly, I would take it. If I didn't have a job and if I didn't love my job, this is an offer. I think I should take it. But I don't want you to make me another offer because this is a fair offer you made. I'm just not in the right position right now to move. And he just, I see his anger in his eyes. (laughs) And he looks at me and he says, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to double it. Is that good enough for you? I said, I'll be here on Monday. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And that's literally how I ended up (laughs) And who was that? Do you remember? Let's not name names here. No problem. Uh, But interestingly, obviously retired from Microsoft now because remember that was 30 plus years ago. (laughs) Yeah, that is great though. I mean, listen, there... When you see good talent, that's something to learn from. Like and that cost, did, I mean, I'm sure you did a good job there and that they made plenty of money off of, of your course. work. Oh, of course. And I think when I left, there was a story. Somebody asked me, why am I leaving Microsoft to start my own company? And my answer was, I'm tired of making billions for Bill. I think it's time for me to make it for myself. <laughs> and so, yeah, how many years were you there? Seven years. Okay. And then, yeah, and how- then I left in 96 and I started my own company. And did you have like a very clear idea and you're like, this is going to be no. it? No. All right. No, actually, no. 
Unfortunately, that's not how it happened. I had no idea what I was going to do. And except that I just realized I needed to do something. Yeah. Came home and my wife looks at me. What are you? You are a terrible father and a terrible husband. I'm pregnant with a child. And now you're telling me you're quitting your job and, you have, and you're going to go start a company? Are you crazy? You need to call them and let them know that you made a mistake and you want your job back. <laughs> so anyway, uh, long story short, I convinced her that I just needed six months to give it a shot uh, and try. And that company became uh, Infospace and uh, we took it public and went on to become a $40 billion company. <laughs> Not bad. <laughs> it worked out, right? Yeah. But, but my point was that's how lives are get created. We basically put all of our life savings into it and it worked out. I mean, that's really- that take? What was that time period? Two years. It, took, it started in 96 and 98, we took it public. At $40 billion. Yeah. yeah. So two years, $40 billion. So your wife wasn't that angry at that point, right? No, no th three years and $40 billion, but it's just if you're counting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's, and and what, what do you credit that success to? I mean, obviously, you were skilled, skilled at that point. Right? I think main thing about life is that, you know, every single company, I don't care what company it is goes through a near-death experience before they're actually successful. We came this close to dying and losing everything in the company. Look at Facebook. I mean, they were close to death. Oracle, they were close to death. Apple, I mean, which is now the biggest company in the world, they literally would have died except Microsoft saved them because they wanted they didn't want to have a you know, justice department going after them, right? Yeah. So my point is, what I learned as an entrepreneur, which is what I'm going to now just change the subject on, is what I learned as an entrepreneur is that life of an entrepreneur is about being alive. And what makes you alive is when you have a heartbeat. What does a heartbeat look like? Up and down and up and down. And when you have a smooth, you're dead. So when someone tells you that they're looking for a smooth life, they're looking for a life of a dead person. Yeah. And what I realize is you need to expect that you're going to have ups and downs, and then you need to accept them when they do happen, right? Know when you are down. All yeah. you have to do is hunker down and know the next beat is going to be up. Yeah. But the lesson that you learn is when you're on top of that beat, never get too cocky because remember yep. the winter is coming. Yeah. Amen. Love that metaphor. No, it's something you see with every entrepreneur. It never ends. You look at the biggest companies in the world. You mentioned yeah. Apple. like. It's not like Tim Cook has it mellow and easy. Like okay. there's always something. And so you IPO this. I assume you got some liquidity there. And did you yeah. just retire there? Was that it? You made no. your money? Well, that's exactly what uh, you know. That's exactly what most people would have done. And I think right. this is really interesting. And I think I'm going to take it in a slightly different direction. Most people, when they make slight bit of money, and especially when their kids are young, what do they say? Oh, I'm going to now sit at home. Yeah. spend time with the family because they need me. And that to me is a fundamentally is a wrong way of doing it because children are looking to you as a role model. So now here is that, let me now play it from a kid's perspective. So I now retire, I sit at home. My kid goes to school and he watches the dad sitting on the sofa watching CNBC. They come back from home, what a dad says, Great job, kid. Tell me what happened in the school. By the way, go do your homework. It takes a hard work to be successful. And they watch the kid, dad sitting on the sofa watching CNBC. Yeah. What they're thinking in their mind is, I want to grow up just like my dad, sit on the sofa and watch CNBC, <laughs> despite what you tell them. Instead, yeah. what dad did was very different. Dad, having made money, starts a second company. Shows the kid it doesn't matter. Money, it's not about telling them money doesn't matter. 
what matters is what you're doing and making something happen. They see you do that. Then you start the third company. And then they see the dad go completely crazy. And dad says, we're going to go to the moon. And we're going to build a company to go to the moon. The yeah. kid's thinking, dad, you're crazy. No private company has done that. What You want to burn your money? Be my guest. But why would you want to ever do something like this? Time for you to retire. Dad goes out and shows them how it can be done. Yeah. And then dad completely loses his mind, says, we're going to go into healthcare now. We're going to change the way people get healthcare. This time, the kids have grown up. Kids had a family meeting, and we all were had a family meeting. Dad, you have done amazingly well. It's time for you to rise into the sunset. Why would you want to? Why would you want? You? Kid wants me to say, you're going to get bloody. You're going to never. No one solves healthcare problems. Are you crazy? And what is this microbiome thing you keep talking about? Nobody understands this microbiome. You are just crazy old man. <laughs> dad says, watch how things are done. And now, dad, can you please help my, you know, help my you know, friend who is really having a lot of his stomach ache. He really needs help. Can you send him a kid, right? My point I'm trying to make is that they see me do these things. And that's the reason every one of our kids, when I, you know, oldest is goes out and say, I can go out and change the way finance is done. I can change the way rents are done. My daughter says, I can go change women's health. Oh, my son says, I can go out and crack this nut. Right. Is why? Because they did not watch. They didn't. I didn't tell them to do something. They watch me do it. Yeah. Right. And that's the lesson to a parent is don't tell your kids, go work hard and be entrepreneurial when you are themselves. You're so scared of being entrepreneurial. The only thing I will tell you that there was a guy who used to work for me and I had hired him from a large company. And one day he comes to me and say, I mean, I don't know why your kids are so entrepreneurial. I keep telling my kids to be entrepreneur and they just don't want to do that. They want to join a company. And I said, no disrespect to you, young man. Tell me, you spend all of your life working at a big company and you probably came home and tell your wife and kids how your life sucked and you go went back to work. You didn't quit and say, fuck it, I'm going to go do it on my own. What do you think your kids are doing? Exactly what you told them and you were doing. Yeah. No. And you hear like, I have so many friends and yeah. people around me that have been told like, oh, entrepreneurship is so risky. And there's so much yeah. risk. I had this conversation the other day. It's like, what's more risky taking a jab, you know, a stab at something that you think is, you know, you're passionate about that you think there's yeah. a need for in the world or working for someone and waiting for them to have a bad day or make a bad decision and hoping that they don't and that you keep yeah. your job. Like to me, both are risky. One, at least I control. That's exactly my point. And I think to be honestly, it's not I mean, the risk. Entrepreneurs are not risk takers. Let's just be very clear. Yeah. The first thing what an entrepreneur does is what's their biggest risk? And they, they de-risk it. They're exactly. not a risk taker. They are de-riskers. I mean, literally everything. Oh, this may not work. Let's make sure we test it and make sure that works. Yeah. When, when people see entrepreneurship risky, no, 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 no. Entrepreneurs is not risk. In fact, your first idea may or may not work. But every idea that does not work is simply a stepping stone to a different idea and a bigger idea. And human beings fail, entrepreneurs pivot. And the only time you fail, entrepreneurs fail, is when they give up. That's the only time they fail. Yeah. The rest is all pivots. Well, it's, it, we always talk about like failure only happens if the, the story stops today. You know, that's right. That's it. If you keep going, it's not failure. 
You were look from at it. Twitter. I mean, Twitter, the first idea failed <laughs> and it became Twitter. <laughs> exactly. And it just keeps going that way. I mean, it's as yeah. long as you, you know, there's a Winston Churchill quote that's really good about that. That's like success is moving from failure to failure without a loss of enthusiasm, I think is what it is. Something along those lines, yeah. <laughs> and it's totally valid. And so... And, and I think to me, the, honestly, the Eric, just on the court, I think the best one I've always enjoyed is Teddy Roosevelt, the man in the arena. Yeah. Have you, I think that really defines the entrepreneurship uh, by, you know, which says yeah. you need to be that man in the arena. It doesn't matter how many times you fall, how many times you get bloody. You never want to be the guy by the ringside who say you could have, should have, would have. <laughs> 100%. No, I agree. And so, and that, I mean, that seems to have defined your career. I mean, so... You know, you went from tech to space to microbiome. And this is, and again, this has nothing to do with money. This is just, you have a mission, you're passionate about it, you want to go on it. So speaking of which, you've now grown Viome. It's become a real business. You're helping people over the world understand their gut health and how to help themselves. What's next? What do you, what is, what are you envisioning? What's kind of coming down the pike for you? Well, I mean, if you think about it, what happens here, we are tackling one of the biggest issues facing humanity. People, I mean, despite the pandemic that we live in, yeah. you know, I'm not going to undermine and say, you know, that's a once in a hundred year infectious disease. And yep. even then 5 million people would die. We have millions of people die every day from diabetes, heart disease, cancer, depression, uh, you know, Alzheimer, Parkinson. These are the diseases, epidemic of chronic diseases that's killing people. Yep. An interesting thing about chronic diseases is, they don't, you don't wake up in the morning and say, honey, I was out with the boys last night. I think I might have caught diabetes. You don't right. catch diabetes. You don't catch heart disease. You don't say, honey, I think I caught obesity. No, sweetie, you have been fat for a long time. Right. <laughs> My point I'm going to make is that chronic diseases are preventable and actually reversible. And that's the fundamental thing. And what we realized was, what if we can understand the human biology at a molecular level? and use the machine learning to see what causes the onset of a chronic disease and what causes the progression of a chronic disease. And if we can prevent it, early diagnose it and cure it, you're done. You have all three paths taken, right? The interesting thing is coming in from outside the industry is what allows you to do that. If you are in an industry, you will never solve the problem. So what I learned was that entrepreneurs believe that expertise is what they need. And what I realized was that it is a non-expert who disrupts the industry. Because yep. once you are expert at something, you can be 10% better than anybody else, but you'll never be 10 times better than anyone else unless you are a non-expert. Where we originally met at XPRIZE, where it's crowdsourcing yep. solutions to problems like the oil spill problem. And it was, I think, a tattoo yep. artist that came up with the idea uh, of the skimmers. Exactly. On the yeah. And that's literally what happened in healthcare. Everyone said, we're going to look at the genetics because people's genes are their destiny. And we said, wait a second, I, am, I don't understand biology, but your DNA never changes. So if you do my DNA today, yeah. and then suddenly I gain 400 pounds, my DNA is the same. I get heart disease, my DNA hasn't changed. Now I get diabetes, my DNA hasn't changed. In fact, I die. And 10 years later, you do my DNA. My DNA still hasn't changed. Yeah. If DNA can't even tell you you're dead or alive, how it will tell you you're healthy or sick? And yeah. we realized was, if your genes are not changing, what is changing? Your gene expression called RNA. Why would you not measure RNA? 
Yeah. That's literally how I came to the conclusion. We are going to solve this problem because no one does gene expression. We're going to go measure the RNA. No one told me RNA, no one can measure RNA because it's not measurable because no one can do it. As an entrepreneur, you never take no for an answer. We found the technology at a biodefense technology at Los Alamos where they were solving this problem for actually bioterrorism. License the technology, got perpetual exclusive licenses, started wild. Now we have analyzed over 325,000 samples. Wow. Imagine what happened. Now we are able to tell you what's happening in your body. What is your biological age? What's your immune health, your cellular health, your mitochondrial health? And then we say, hey, Eric, don't eat broccoli and Brussels sprout, even though you think they're healthy, but your sulfide production is too high in your gut. They're causing inflammation. Don't eat these foods because they sulfide requires sulfate, which is broccoli and cabbage and Brussels sprout. Yeah. Don't eat spinach, even though Popeye told you spinach is healthy for everyone. Popeye was not a scientist. Your oxalate metabolism is very poor and spinach is very high in oxalate. Don't do that. You have a lot of ammonia in your gut production that's causing a lot of inflammation and it's coming from protein fermentation. That means you're eating a lot of protein that's not being digested. So either cut down or take digestive enzyme with your protein. And yeah. by the way, don't take vitamin B3 because your uric acid production is too high. Don't take curcumin even though everyone tells you it's anti-inflammatory because your bile acid production is too high. And by the way, everyone tells you to take NAD and NR or NMN because they live longevity. And you should not be doing that because your cellular senescence is very high and your inflammation is high. Don't do that. And by in, in addition to that, you do need 22 milligram of elderberry every day. You do need 17 milligram of amylase. And literally, we make those capsules with only those ingredients in that dosage robotically for you and ship it to you. And that's literally what happens. You come to a while. Yeah. Right? You order a kit. As you can see, it doesn't look like a medical product. Yeah. Imagine living in a world where illness is optional. It is a lifestyle product. You send us your touch of a stool, couple of drops of blood, and we're adding saliva. And you get back the information about what's happening in your body and what to do. And when you order your supplements, literally comes a precisely just what you need, nothing that you don't. And here is a capsule. Every single one here is made yeah. for you on that day. There is no pre-made capsule. It's literally filled in with every ingredient that your body needs. And that to me is a complete game changer. That is where we started with. And then we showed people clinically that when they do this for four months, their IBS clinical score came down by 40%. Their wow. depression score, PHQ-9 came down by 36%. Their anxiety score came down by 32% measured by GAD-7. Their diabetes score came down by HbA1c by 30%, right? That's just the clinical data. And then we say, you know, now we have all this data that we now have all these people and they tell us when they are diseased and when they are not diseased, can we diagnose the disease early? And guess what? We got the FDA breakthrough device designation or detecting stage one oral cancer, stage one throat cancer with a spit of a saliva. And that's literally... Wow. Excuse me, I think it reminded me that I think yeah. when I are drinking the same, same bottle, bottle of water, by the way, same funny. bottle. <laughs> so by the way, so we are able to diagnose cancer at an early stage or stage one with 95% specificity and 90% sensitivity. And then we actually will say, okay, now that we can diagnose, how do we cure them? And we actually found the mechanism, went to GSK and we signed two contracts 
to develop a vaccine against an autoimmune disease and a vaccine against a colorectal cancer. Imagine that for a second. Now we are able to prevent, diagnose, and reverse these things. So that answer, your long answer to the question, what happens next? <laughs> yeah, so early, early detection and prevention of cancer, and I'm assuming you're looking at Alzheimer's, you're looking at diabetes, Absolutely. all the diseases, so yeah. So Alzheimer's slash precursor to Alzheimer's is called MCI, mild cognitive impairment. So we're doing all of that, all the GI tract from esophageal cancer, colorectal cancer, head, neck, shoulder cancer, breast cancer, right? And then you go down the path of NAFLD and heart disease and diabetes, and these are all metabolic diseases. That's and mental health, by the way, depression, anxiety, and neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ALS. When I think that we, you know, it's common agreement that your diet, your gut health has a lot to do with your overall health period yep. now. So like yep. Yep. Cancer. I think I, I saw years ago, the highest correlation yep. between lifestyle and cancer was a gut, right. was having yes. a fat around your midsection. And by the way, interestingly, we think we discovered something. And you know, 2,500 years ago, there was a doctor, a Greek doctor named Hippocrates. You know, what did he say? All diseases begin in the gut. Let food be thy medicine, let thy medicine be the food. And he knew that not one food is good for everyone. What did he say? One man's food is another man's poison. I mean, literally, we knew yeah. that 2,500 years ago. And now yeah. somehow we think we invented the concept of food as a medicine. Yeah, which is great though. I mean, and listen, it's it, it, given, as you mentioned the pandemic, we talk about the core morbidities and what was a lot of the cause of people dying here. I think the highest one was uh, diabetes, having diabetes. Absolutely. And obesity, by the obesity, okay. diabetes are the number two. And I think to some extent, inflammation. I mean, let's be very clear. Yeah. Obesity, diabetes, and all these, these things are basically a symptom of high inflammation. And inflammation right. root, chronic inflammation is a root cause of chronic diseases. That's, yeah. it, that's it, right? Yeah. And, and morbidity and cancer is essentially the uh, your immune system not actually working to its fullest capacity. Because if your immune system is working, it can deal with your uh, flu or COVID. When immune system is working well, it kills the cancer because literally right. the cancer is formed in our body multiple times every day. Yeah. And immune system just kills it. It is when the immune system actually is not able to do that is when you develop a cancer. And yeah. now what we're finding is the microbiome, not only in our gut, in our mouth, but also they end up inside the tumor and they protect the tumor from the immune system. What's well, fascinating. And so one more question for you, yeah. for yeah. someone trying to pursue this, you've done a good job with your kids and I know Akhor and like that you, they've- Oh, you do. Of course, yeah. you know Priyanka and Neil. Yes, of yeah. course you do. They, they've done incredible things. What would your advice be to someone trying to pursue their dreams now, what, young or old, whenever it is that it hits, that it's like, I've got to go do something. What's your one piece of advice you wish you had or you didn't have that set you off? I, I tell you, it's very simple. When you wake up in the morning and you don't jump out of the bed, you should quit what you're doing. That's not your calling. And it's not about the passion. People say you must be passionate about something. I say passion is for hobbies. Passion is for losers. The <laughs> entrepreneurs have obsession. They go to sleep thinking about it. They jump out of the bed in the morning wanting to do that. If you can find your true obsession, your North Star, what you're willing to die for and live for it. And that is what you end up doing is when you literally find something that you're willing to give your last drop of blood, you never fail because you will die trying every possible ways, right? And other way you find, I find it, people say, look, if I, you had everything, Eric, you had billions of dollars, you had a sweet family, what would you do? And if you do that now, that's what will make you everything you need. 
Amen. Well, Naveen, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on Hawk Talk. And look, look forward to it, brother. This is amazing. And I still shared more personal story than I shared with anyone else. <laughs> That's awesome. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts, all month-to-month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.